Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does that matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. I'm going to look at just two areas where Paul is an encouragement to us and where God wants to speak to us out of this passage. The first point I'm going to call a positive perspective on trouble, and then we're going to look at a positive attitude to death. Let's start off with a positive perspective on trouble. Philippians 1 and verse 12 starts with these words. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters. And the whole sense of the original language, and actually it comes through in our own language, is that he's calling them to their attention to something he sees as very important. I want you to really get this. And I would say that the Holy Spirit wants to say the same to us this morning through Paul. Now, I want you to listen to this. I want you to really get what I'm saying. Now, Paul's going to go on and give a personal testimony which is utterly focused on Jesus Christ and is rooted in a conviction of the sovereignty of God, a trust in God's sovereignty. You're going to see, or you've seen, because I've read it to you, that there's very little detail about what he's personally experiencing. Now, he is actually a prisoner in chains. He refers twice to his chains, verses 13 and 14. And probably the reality was that this was a stage when Paul was certainly in prison, but it was a little bit more of an open situation. Not that he ever got out of prison, but people were allowed to visit him. And he had brought food parcels to him and brought uh, friendly advice and came and talked to him. And actually he would have been chained to a Roman guard possibly 24-7, certainly for most of the day and the night. Maybe he would have been chained to a wall or to a guard. And that guard would accompany him to the toilet, would accompany him everywhere he did things, and would have to sit by him while Paul was talking to his friends and explaining about the gospel, while Paul was writing his letters, including this very letter to Philippians. He would have probably had the facilities to write, obviously, but this guard would have had to be alongside him all the time. 
And then as he prayed, and as he probably read the Old Testament scriptures himself, this guard would have been there for all of it. Bear that in mind. Verse 12, he makes, Paul makes one of the passing references to the fact that he's been through a fairly difficult time. He said, what has happened to me? You look, he said that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, if you know your Bibles, you will know what has happened to him was quite a lot. You don't need to worry about reading it all because I'm going to help you by summarizing it in a matter of seconds, really. But what has happened to Paul includes this. Listen carefully because it's true. What has happened to him is he has been the victim of deceit when he was originally arrested, of malpractice, of very poor justice, of a quite cynical manipulation of the justice system. He has been a victim of people lying about him. He has suffered physical pain. It's not nice to be chained to anybody and he's had a lot of discomfort, he has completely lost his personal freedom and his privacy. He has got no privacy. He has been shipwrecked, and he has now spent two years of uncertainty. What he's waiting for is the decision of a despotic ruler, probably Nero in his early uh, reign as Caesar. He's waiting for a decision that could as easily mean he's executed as it could mean he's released. It could go either way, executed or released, and there's just uncertainty all the time how this despotic ruler will call it. Yet you don't pick up any complaint, any moaning, any frustration, which he must have felt, with all of those things that I've just quickly laid out to you. It's pretty remarkable. What can we learn from the Apostle Paul? And this is relevant to you. I could honestly say I don't know what troubles or difficulties you're going through, but they will always feel big to you. And I suggest to you that not many of you have gone through a two years like Paul has, though some of you, frankly, will have done in a different sort of way. And I just want you to hear, how is it then that Paul is able to be so positive and encouraging, so focused? Let's just look at it quickly. What can we learn from him? Well, here's one thing. Paul always sees himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Whatever he's doing and wherever he is, all the time, he is a servant of Jesus Christ. And that comes out in the very first verse of Philippians where he calls himself and Timothy servants of Jesus Christ. But he does it very often. And although he will use sometimes an apostle, he will talk about his calling and his gift. His preferred way of seeing himself is as a servant of Jesus Christ. And actually, he seemed to spend quite a lot of time in prison. And actually, in several of the letters written from prisons, Ephesians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon, he calls himself, listen to this, a prisoner of Christ Jesus or a prisoner of the Lord. He doesn't see himself as a prisoner of Caesar or as a prisoner of the circumstances or the Roman authorities, or their uh, manipulation of the law to just keep certain people quiet. He doesn't see any of that. He says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I'm a servant of Jesus. Paul lived knowing that Jesus is Lord of my life. Whatever I'm doing, my heavenly Father is in control. Always, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I'm a servant of Jesus. 
I'm a servant of Jesus Christ all the time. Now, that's not peculiar to Paul. That's Christianity. That's how we live. Whatever our physical circumstances, whatever our social status, whatever our marital status, whatever, whether we're single, whether we're lonely, whether we're, 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 we're married and we've got loads of things buzzing, whether you're these, it's a wedding cake, the middle tier, the top tier, the bottom tier that, that we heard about this morning, you are, if you're a real Christian, you're a servant of Jesus Christ. And Paul knew that. That was his identity. It was that however free or not he was, he was a servant of Jesus. So when, and this must have been incredibly frustrating to be locked up in prison when he had all these churches he wanted to visit and things he wanted to do. He wasn't elderly and sick, though people can be imprisoned by sickness and, uh, uh, and age. And, and I think they need to hear this as we all need to hear this. But basically his, his restrictions were humanly imposed on him. And, and actually he still sees himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. That is how he looks on life. The second thing we pick up from Paul is this. He has a clear faith that God can work in all things for good. This is not theoretical. Now, Paul puts it in Romans 8, 28 pretty clearly. Let's quickly look at that. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Now, Paul wrote that And he wrote it, obviously, to the Romans. But Paul obviously lived that as well. He knew that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. This does not mean that all things are good in themselves. It's not good to be beaten with with rods uh, on the accusations, the false accusations of, of Jewish authorities. It's not necessarily good to be shipwrecked. Nobody would say that's a good thing to experience. But somehow, in it all, he knew God worked for good. In the shipwreck example, they ended up bringing the gospel uh, to Malta, I think it was, wasn't it? And there was a breakthrough there. Now, in everything, God can work for good. And uh, this is a principle that Paul lived by and understood. Wicked people, and they had here, may plot to shut down the gospel and restrict Christians from preaching the gospel to obstruct its progress. But God can even turn their plans to good. That's what's happening right here in Philippians. There are three examples of this. Paul is in a Roman prison, chained, as I said, to a guard. Now, it seems the guards were Praetorian guards, which is pretty high, high-grade Roman soldiers. They were the palace guards. They were the elite troops, in some ways, of the Roman army. And for whatever reason, perhaps because he was uh, an important prisoner in some ways or for some other reason, they, they were involved in the duties of looking after and keeping Paul under lock and key. But as I said, all the time he's talking about Jesus. He probably talked to them personally. I think Paul would have engaged them in conversation. I, I'm sure he did. But they were also watching what he was doing. And he says, as a result of this, Everybody in the palace knows why I'm in prison. The whole thing is out there. People are hearing about Christ. Now, actually, in other places, he refers to it as, in, as well. And the facts are that some of these guards became followers of Jesus Christ. The facts are that some in Caesar's household became followers of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, 
God is working. If I wasn't here, these guys would not hear the gospel and some in the palace even are becoming Christians who would never have done. He really is seeing how God's working for good. Now, there was something else that was happening that dear Paul would never have anticipated, but God was working for good. And you, this morning, are part of it. Right now. Why? I'm speaking to you 2,000 years later from a letter he was writing in that Roman prison. He's sitting there wishing he could go to the Philippians, wishing he could go to the Ephesians, wishing he could go to the Romans, and he can't. And so he's wishing he could get to Timothy and Philemon. So he has to write a letter. Second best, I would argue, Paul probably thought. This is second best. I'd rather be there. But God had an incredible plan, didn't he? The Holy Spirit was using that, and those prison letters are some of the most outstanding and inspiring parts of the New Testament. How God can work for good in all circumstances. Paul got it to a degree. He saw the guards were getting saved, but there was a degree that God had beyond his understanding that he only now would perhaps understand when he's in glory. And so actually, the same is true for us. There are things we get. We say, yeah, yeah, God, use that for good. But you don't know the half often of what God's doing. You don't know the half. But there's a faith in it that God can work in all these things. Other things that were happening that he saw it was uh, that people were provoked and inspired to to get more bold. It's interesting, isn't it? They were encouraged to be bolder in preaching the gospel. So actually, good people who loved Paul and who were around him, brothers and sisters, not just big leaders, were preaching Christ more because of his chains. I I think that's inspiring, and it's probably logical too, believe it or not, that that people were sort of stood out. If Paul can do it, if Paul can still keep preaching when he's in prison, if Paul is still so positive and clear about the gospel, I think we can do well. And I hope that provokes you. If Paul could do it in those circumstances, what about you talking at work? What about you with that slightly cold and grumpy person? But, you know, oh, no, no, I don't want to offend them. No, come on, let's talk about Jesus. And actually, that was going on. People, good people were inspired. But there were also, and this is incredible, some people who got bold preaching the gospel who didn't like Paul. That's quite incredible, but it's true. And he says they were preaching Christ, and I use his words, out of envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition. Listen to that. Envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition. Now, it's quite, I mean, I'm interested to know who were these people. And some commentators say, well, they were Judaizers. That's the, the, the Jew sort of ones that added the law to everything. I don't think they were. Paul never minced his words with Judaizers. Paul said they preached another gospel. If you preach a gospel where you have to do all the law and all these rules as well as following Jesus, it's another gospel to Paul. You read the book of Galatians. I don't think he had much time for Judaizers. This is actually more painful. These appear to be genuine Christians preaching Christ. Possibly ambitious to be leaders or to take some of the kudos that Paul had. Possibly rivals for him in terms of leading the churches, apostolic rivals. I don't know. But they are preaching Christ probably to show we don't need Paul. Paul's in prison. We can do it. We can lead you. We can preach as well as Paul. We don't need Paul. Forget him. He's a deadbeat. He spends half his life in prison. I don't know how they put it, but it's quite hurtful. 
But actually, they were real Christians, and they were really preaching Jesus. And Paul says, so even that's for good. He said, they really got their act together. They didn't do very well when I was out. Now they've really got their act together to show how much, uh, how much better than me they are or how they don't need me. But he says, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Isn't that a beautiful attitude? Isn't that beautiful? Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Do you know, I sometimes think we can get too uptight about even the divisions amongst Christians and the disunity. We get very desperate. Oh, it's a shame we don't all sit in the same building and sing the same thing. I, I mean, let, let the big. I mean, I don't. Let's not have any horribleness towards Christians. Let's not be unkind like these people were. But sometimes God uses even the differences and the and the provocation and the pressures that come in to advance the gospel. That's part of the mystery of it. Sometimes one group provokes and stirs up another group. One group lead in an area and others pick it up. And what looks like disunity, and frankly is a form of disunity, God somehow works in it to advance the gospel. Somehow he takes the whole church further on as a result. Honestly, that is how Paul had perceived what was happening. One old writer, F.B. Meyer, says this, Storms cannot shipwreck the gospel. They can only waft it forward. Isn't that a lovely way of putting it? Storms cannot shipwreck the gospel. They can only waft it forward. He goes on, It will be found, doubtless at the end of all things, that the beneficent purposes of God have not been hindered one whit, but promoted and fostered by all that has been done to frustrate them. So all the people, even in our day and age, let's be encouraged. We can get very uptight with the secularization of Britain. <gasps> you know, Islamification of Britain. Oh, you know, the laws are shutting us down. I go, it gets bad as you. I'm a, woo, I go inside, write to the MP and start tweeting about it. But we can get, but actually, Paul would say, it'll, it'll all work out for the extension of the gospel. It'll provoke something. If we get more and more in a mess, in the end, it'll provoke revival. Everybody will realize that humanism and secularization leads to an absolute disaster. There'll be, well, already is, an absolute chaos amongst families and social situations, and it will provoke the gospel. I mean, I'm not pleased we've gone secular. I'm not pleased about all these things in my nation, but I believe God is bigger than it. We don't have to say, oh, maybe there'll be no church at all in 20 years. Oh, don't talk rubbish. People have tried to wash the church out for centuries. I mean, what about what's gone on in, 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 behind the Iron Curtain and the Bamboo Curtain in the mid-20th century? And down come the Iron Curtain and the Bamboo Curtain, there's millions of Christians in there. Even today, in Islamic uh, majority nations, Muslim majority nations, some of them extremely resistant to the gospel, hateful to the gospel, there are more movements to Christ amongst Muslims in the last 12 to 15 years. There have been more movements to Christ amongst Muslims in Muslim-majority countries in the first part of the 21st century, many more than in the whole of the 20th century. I'm reading about it in a book called A Wind in the House of Islam. Read about it yourself. You can buy the book, David Garrison. And actually, there are, I think on his estimate, there are about movements of the Spirit, many, many thousands of Muslims coming to Christ, getting baptized. That's what he's talking about, setting up church groups, but they're not like our church. They're groups within their own culture. 
There are about 11 or 12 in the 20th century. He would say there have been 69 of these movements so far in the 21st century. I mean, it looks like, but even that provokes the gospel. Somehow Jesus, God's plans are being worked out. It's wonderful stuff, and it's encouraging stuff. And the final one, which is linked to that, Paul is totally focused on the advance of the gospel. So we're, I forgot what point I'm making, really. Oh, what we can learn from Paul. There we go. Paul is totally focused on the advance of the gospel. I'm getting encouraged myself. I hope you are. I'm having a good time. I'm glad I came anyway. And, and he is totally focused on the advance of the gospel. He doesn't... Do you get this? I get it. I thought, wow, this is brilliant. He doesn't need to be doing the actual preaching. He doesn't need to get the credit. He doesn't even need to be leading it because some people are doing it negatively, as we've seen. And yet he's excited that the gospel's advancing. What a great attitude. It's like if we hear revival in the Baptist church or Christ church, we get as excited as if it was here. I don't know if I would, really, but I might with a sort of, oh, please do it here as well. But, but Paul, I mean, Paul's just thrilled that there's advance. He's just thrilled by it. And it seems genuine, totally. And I'll tell you, it's a real help for getting a perspective on life. The Lord Jesus is the center of everything he does. Let's finish this first section. Just challenge ourselves, and I do genuinely include myself. Do we get this? Do we get this? That Jesus Christ is the most important thing in our lives. And in most important thing in our perspective of life. Do I believe that God is ultimately in control? Do I see myself as a servant of Jesus, whatever my circumstances are, in the most limiting, restricted, and apparently deadbeat and boring situation? Do I still say I'm a servant of Jesus? Or do I think I can only say that if I'm leading a church and preaching or doing loads of stuff and loads of activity? Can I actually say, Jesus, I'm your servant. How do I serve you here? Maybe I just pray for a while. Maybe I just pray for people. Maybe I do this, do that. A little act of kindness. I don't know. But how do I serve you here? That, do I do that? Let's look at this quote. Alec Mottier in his commentary says this. Our Lord Jesus is the key of all history and of personal history. He must be made the deciding factor in every Christian choice. He is also the object of the Christian's supreme resolve as we face the future. The glory of Christ must be our controlling interest. In the heat of the trial, in the thick of life, in the press of circumstances, the Christian is the one who sees no man save Jesus only. What an encouragement. Now, actually, the way Paul relates this It could seem, he tells it so easily that you could say, well, you know, it was easily accomplished. It was easy for Paul to be like this because he tells it with such ease of spirit. So it's easy for Paul. But I challenge you, why, and I challenge myself, why should it have been any easier for Paul than for you and me? Why should it have been any easier for Paul not to be consumed with self-pity than it is for you? Why is it, harder for you not to be consumed with self-pity. Can you justify that? Can you say, well, you know, if you only knew my circumstances, that's why I'm a bit focused on myself and my troubles. 
Well, why, why couldn't Paul be focused on himself and his troubles? What was different about him? I don't think he automatically, naturally, had a disposition, a character that was just like this, that thought everything about Jesus and thought everything was Jesus-centered and that he was serving Jesus and he didn't need to keep going on and on about what a tough time he was having. I don't think that was just his character. I think you can be like that and I can be like that as well. I think this was an attitude that came from hard-won choices in life. That when he hit difficulties, when he hit disappointments, he made a serious choice to look at Christ and to be Christ-centered about them. He determined to see that Jesus was in charge, the author and finisher of his faith. And he was, as the Hebrew writer says, going to consider Jesus and avoid growing weary and losing heart because he got his focus on Jesus. You and I can do the same, brothers and sisters. You cannot escape into saying, well, it was easier for Paul. No, it wasn't. He was a normal person. He'd started off as a very tough character of a different sort of state of mind altogether. I don't think he would have sat there saying, praise God, people hate me, but they're preaching the gospel. Once upon a time, he had stoned them or killed them. That's how he started off. That was his natural disposition. He'd worked at this. He'd chosen in life's cut and thrust to follow Jesus and focus on him. Let's move on quickly to the second one. Oh, dear, my t- what happened? You wind that clock forward, don't you? Somebody, <laughs> somebody does it by remote control. I'm convinced. I've only been 10 minutes. Right. Okay, second and last point, and it's going to be a positive attitude to death. Now, this is a big one as well. It's tucked in there in verses 20 to 24. And it's about the difference our faith makes to even this huge, big subject of death. And again, Paul is inspiring. Look at those verses again. He says in verse 21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. I don't know if you, you know I used to teach English many years ago. There's a famous speech in Shakespeare, you've probably all heard of it. It's Hamlet's soliloquy in the play Hamlet. And it starts, to be or not to be, that is the question. And in that speech, and it is powerful and famous, Hamlet is weighing the sorrows of life from which death would relieve him against the terrors of death from which life protects him or delivers him. Do I want to die or do I want to live? Which is better? He considers, Hamlet, the troubles and disappointments, scorns, betrayals that he's experiencing in life, and death seems the better option. But then he thinks of death. He thinks of its horrors, its unknowns. He thinks of what dreams might I have if I sleep. That means what might happen after I die. What might death hold after it has happened? And from that, he turns back to life and thinks, I prefer to be alive then. And so he tosses and turns, and it's a powerful, powerful Shakespearean insight into the human dilemma without Christ and in normal life. And Hamlet is not in prison, and he's not a poor person. He's a wealthy person, but he's been betrayed. There's all sorts of horrible things going on in his family, and in his parents, actually. And, 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 and there's all stuff we can relate to. And he says, I don't even know. Do I want to be or not to be? Do I want to live or die? They both have horrors. Now, think about Paul. 
On the other hand, Paul has a totally different attitude. He's impressed with the riches of life and of death. (laughs) He doesn't know which to choose because he thinks both are sweet. It's sweet to live and it's sweet to die. I can't choose. They're both great. How different is that? I can't choose. They're both great. On the whole, he prefers the idea of death, actually. It's better by far to depart and be with Christ. Now, you could say, is this phony? Is this hype? No, it's not. This man is in a Roman prison. This man is facing possible execution, losing all his privileges, like I told you. But also, he is a man who had loads of things he wanted to do. You can pick it up in the New Testament. He wanted to visit a whole stack of churches he hadn't visited. He wanted to visit the churches he did know to see how they were doing. He wanted to go to new areas such as Spain, which he mentions in Rome, in the book to Romans. He had loads of things he wanted to do. He did not feel his job was over. He didn't think, well, I don't know what to do anyway. Life's just shut in. There's not much to do. There was nothing like that about Paul. But having said all that, he has an honest, clear-headed assessment of his life and his death as a follower of Jesus, a man of faith. That's what's making the difference. He's not got nothing to do. He's got loads of things he'd like to do. He can't do them. He's been shut in. He's been beaten up and made a prisoner. But he actually is a man who trusts in Jesus and has put his faith in Jesus. This, again, is not something that is peculiar to a superhero Paul. This is how we are to live, brothers and sisters. This is how we are to live. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Life is good and it's worth living. Death is gain. There's no sting to death. What an attitude. You know, to live is Christ, I want to live, but to die is gain. That's how it is. I'm not afraid to live, and I'm not afraid to die. How are you? Are you afraid to live? Are you afraid to die? You don't need to be. If you trust in Jesus, he's your Lord, he's your master, you're his servant. Live as his servant. Don't be afraid to live. Don't be afraid to die. You'll still be with him, even more so than when you're alive. This is the birthright of all Christians. Philippians 1.23, describes, he describes death like this. If you could pop it up for me. Philippians 1.23, I know it's hard to keep up with me. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Now listen, he uses a word, depart. And then we're going to have five minutes. Sorry, children's workers. We've got to get Christian understanding of death because we don't talk enough about it today. You know the old thing, the Victorians love to talk about death, but hate it, wouldn't mention sex, well, we're the other way around, aren't we? We love to talk about sex, no one will talk about death, not properly. Now, Paul, we're going to talk about it now, so, not sex, death. So, <laughs> we hear too much of sex, get bored listening to that. Listen, he talks about it as a departure. Now, that word is used a lot in the New Testament. We'll touch one or two verses in a moment. And its original Greek meaning is to do with a tent being folded up, breaking up camp and moving on. That's what it was used for. You fold your tent up, pack it away at the end of West Point and you are departing and moving on. (laughs) No cheers please, Steve. Right. When I was preparing this, so here we are going to indulge me, you're going to clock and all the rest of it, but here we go. I felt God just 
use the word differently for me. I'm speaking to a congregation of mixed age, but there's quite a few of you in here who are probably in the older part of life, that bottom tier, or even a bit more. I'm 65 in a few weeks' time, and there's quite a few of you who are that age and beyond. So for a moment, I'm going to talk to you, because I felt that God spoke to me about an airport departure for those of us as we get older. And most of us, actually, including you younger folk, most of you will probably follow through a normal pattern of life, which will mean you won't actually die until you're in that older quarter, that last quarter, oh, perhaps over 70 or something like that. Think about an airport for a moment. I've travelled quite often, as you know, and going on a long-haul flight would be a best illustration, somewhere like India. You go to the airport and you check in and normal life stops. It's still there, but you're, you're no longer out on the roads and doing stuff. You check in, and then you go through a number of different stages. You go through immigration, you go through the security checks and all that sort of thing. And then you get to a period where you seem to have plenty of time to move around and browse in the shops and buy a coffee and have a lunch and make a few phone calls and read a book. And then there'll be uh, your gate number comes up, and you know where you've got to move to the gate. And then you go to the departure lounge. And in the departure lounge, it's a bit quieter. You'll sit there, you still read and think and do things. And then your flight is called and you depart. Now, I think for many of us in normal life, it's going to be a bit like that. I think I'm checking in this year. <laughs> checking in. I'm getting my pension. I've got my uh, uh, over 60s bus pass. I've had that a long time. But I, 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 and, you know, life will change. The dynamic of life will change. I'm still enjoying things, still going to relax, but things will change. There will be stages I'll go through. I'm not sure exactly they parallel to immigration and, and security, but I've got to also enjoy this. I'm not a, keeping obsessed by, oh, I'm going to fly in a minute. Whoa, blah, 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 which, oh, well, I hope it's all right. No, no, just enjoy it. Just look around the shops, buy a few coffees, make yourself useful, talk to people, uh, be friendly, relax, and enjoy it. There'll be milestones. But then there will come a little more certainty. The, the number comes up, the gate number. You're in the departure lounge. And you know it's a little bit closer. That's fine. Don't get fearful. Just relax. Enjoy it. You may be a bit limited now. You can't move around everywhere. But still be open to being friendly and cheerful and worth sitting and talking to and enjoying what you can, maybe having memories Maybe praying for people. You can see I'm using it as a metaphor. I hope you've got that. Maybe just uh, making it a joy for those who do get time to talk to you. And don't see the departure as a disaster. See it as a delight. This is going to be better. Better by far. I'm looking forward to this. I'm flying. I'm going to, I'm going, I'm on a desti- to a destination. Think about destination. Think about where you're going. Death is only a departure from this troubled world. It's only freeing you from this groaning, creaking body. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. There is clear Christian theology in this passage. To die is gain. Now that does not mean the act of dying. The Greek is very clear in this tense here that it means the result of dying. So the act of dying isn't something any of us look forward to, but the result is a gain. It's better. He's not relishing being executed, and that's what he was in the end, but he is relishing being with Christ, and that is far better. 
Then he uses another phrase in verse 22. If I am to go on living in the body, I want, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to take a moment because I think we don't understand this. If I am to go on living in the body, the physical body life you have and I have is not all there is to you. It's not all about your body. It's not your body is everything. What your body wants is everything. And when I lose my body, I lose everything. That is not true. There is a you that lives in your body. A real I. In in Corinthians, put that one up for me. 2, 5, it says, Therefore we are always confident, and as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And then Paul goes on in verse 24 to say, It is necessary for you that I remain in the body. There is a clear understanding theologically that you are a lot more than your body. There is a real you that will go on to be with Jesus and will one day get a new body. Your body isn't everything. It shouldn't dictate. If it's not as great as you'd like it to be, that's a shame, but it's just like you haven't got a very good tent and some people have got a better tent. Who cares? It's who's in the tent that matters. (laughs) Who wants a posh tent? Well, it's nice. You just need a tent. You don't go to West Point and spend all the time, well, not unless you're weird, all the time obsessing about whether you've got the best tent or not. Well, I don't want any tent, really, but it's nice to have a nice one. But let's do what we're here for. You know, the tent is not what it's all about. Wake up. It's not all about body, 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 body. No, there's me. I want to, one day I'll be absent from the body and present with the Lord. One day this flappy old leaky tent will be folded up. Now, Peter says that. Oh, I've got loads of verses. Put this up, 2 Peter 1. I think it is right to refresh... Did these go up? Oh, yes, they do. I I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know... See, he lives in the tent because I know that I will soon put it aside. I will put it aside. Ooh, that's interesting as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, that's that word again, you will always be able to remember these things. Peter, and this is Christian theology. Do you believe it? You are not just a body. You live in that body. You already have, if you're a Christian, you can have it this morning if you're not. You have eternal life and that will go on forever. Christ is everything now. He will be even more everything, if that's possible. It's bad English. When you die, he is everything. You just start a new life now, an eternal life that goes on and on. Now, of course, your personal departure can have pain and sorrow for you, but particularly for those who are left behind. All this stuff, this truth, doesn't mean that there isn't some pain involved as we're separated from others. And the Bible and the Apostle Paul are really realistic because in the same book, Philippians, you've got this, if you could pop it up. Philippians 2, 27. His friend Epaphroditus had been very, very ill and had nearly died. And Paul is able to express a completely normal grieving anticipation. Look at it. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on me, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. You think, oh, that's inconsistent, Paul. Oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. Oh, clever dick. Look, listen. 
He's a real person, Paul. He would have felt very disturbed and upset when his good friend Epaphroditus died. It's all right to mourn. It's all right. When Stephen was stoned, he went straight to be with Jesus. He said so, Lord, receive my spirit. But people went away in tears, burying him. They were grieved. They were sobbing. That's okay. That fits. That's not wrong. Because we believe it's better by far, it doesn't mean we can't be sorry. We've got to be, hello, oh, please they died. No, no. No, no, that's stupid Christian nonsense. You can grieve. But you don't grieve like those who have no hope, do you? It's better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. He knows it. He's confident. He trusts God. And yet, if he'd lost Epaphroditus, he would have been very, very unhappy. Sorrow upon sorrow. Now, actually, as we finish, we are nearly there, what happened to Paul was that he didn't die straight away. And he senses that, and you get that as you read it, that he might be released. And what we know is that Paul had five more years. And uh, he did get out, and he did get round to visit people. But then, if, and we haven't time to read it now, but if you were to read 2 Timothy 4, you would find a similar type of anticipation of death But this time, he is pretty confident he's going to die. And that's what happened. Nero got really mad, actually, in a literal sense. He was mentally sick. But he also got very angry with Christians. He turned on the Christian community. And there was a massive persecution about five years later. And in that persecution, Paul was executed. He was beheaded uh, later. And in 2 Timothy 4, he is in prison just before his execution. And there's this little phrase in verse 6. The time of my departure is near. I think he senses this one, with, this is the real one. We're in the departure lounge and the flight is going to be any time now. The numbers are up, it's on time, it's not delayed, I'll be going this time. But you still pick up the same spirit of confidence in God. He had enjoyed five years, he hadn't anticipated, he'd enjoyed the privilege of it. But his courage and his anticipation of serving God well and going out well is as strong as ever. He's entrusted himself into the hands of Jesus all the way through and he's not going to change now at the last minute. May Jesus Christ be the rock of your life and my life. May you build on it now. Don't try and sort it out in the last hours of your life. Build on it now so that no storm, including the big storm of death, shakes you. And may you live, like I want to live, focused on Jesus, that whatever I do, I'm serving him. I'm I'm most interested in the advance of his kingdom, the advance of the gospel. That's what really encourages me. And we will put up a last verse. And this is what Paul writes in Philippians 4, verse 9. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, God spoke that verse to me a few months ago. I mean it personally in my quiet time. I felt God said, look at Paul. As you get older, as you get a little bit anxious about things, look at Paul and learn from him. This is in the Bible. It's inspired. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I say to you, if you're old, if you're young, look at what we've talked about this morning, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. 
Let's stand, and we're just going to pray, because I've been a bit long. We're not going to have time for a song. Let's just stand together. Father, I know that, in a way, this has been a bit longer than I anticipated, but I feel, Lord, that you wanted us to hear this. I feel, Lord, that we need every one of us to to absorb something from your word this morning, to, to, uh, to, to be inspired and almost receive impartation from these words, from this dear servant of yours, the Apostle Paul. And I pray, Lord, that every one of us, as we go home now, will go home with new courage, encouraged about our daily life, about serving you, whatever our circumstances, about getting the big picture of you, even in the difficulties we face. And I pray that every one of us will also go home with a confidence that, yeah, life is worth living, but death is just a game. And I'll see Jesus depart and be with him, which will be far better. And I pray, Lord, that we'll live in the light of that, not wishing to die, but not frightened of it either. I pray you'll help us, Father, by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Just before you sit down, just before you go, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, and you don't really know the sort of confidence I'm talking about, because it has been largely directed to Christians, of course, you probably know a bit, or you perhaps wouldn't even be here this morning, but if you'd like to know more, I've got some little books called Why Jesus? Please come and take one from me this morning. Explains the gospel a bit more. And of course, as Steve Lee advertised, you could come on our Alpha course, which starts pretty soon, in a couple of weeks' time. There's details on the uh, stands there. So perhaps do both. Take a book and come to it. But don't feel that you have to go through life like Hamlet. You can go through life like the Apostle Paul.